Tava Johnstone helps parents get creative about homeschooling their spirited children. Known as NeuroCurious Therapist on Instagram, she is a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, parent educator, and consultant. Tava is a proud unschooling mom who offers a workshop for parents interested in modern homeschool and unschool. She is passionate about raising spirited and creative kids with a healthy sense of self and believes out-of-classroom learning can be a wonderful way to do that. She held numerous appointed positions with the National Association of Social Workers in service of children and youth, including the Committee for Children, Youth, and Young Adults. During our interview, we discussed the zealot mentality forming among contemporary ideologues, the difference between a perfect parent and a good enough parent, and qualities of spirited children that bring hope for the future. With part two of our conversation, I'm Sienna Mayheath, and this is Leaving the Left for Liberty. I'd like to take <laughs> this opportunity to sort of shift gears from um, the individual back to the family. Uh-huh. I, I've heard you say that true social justice can strengthen the health of the family. Mm-hmm. In your view, what do you think is true social justice and how can it strengthen the family unit? Sure. Um, True social justice is every family has basic housing, basic food, shelter, health care, parents. Parents are able to function at a minimum of providing for their kids. Parents are not being exploited by their jobs. Um, parents have health care, parents have safe, uh, child care, not necessarily, uh, paid for by the state, but maybe there's, um, a community of parents who help each other. So just like, I see true social justice for the family as the families have a basic standard of living. People are not hungry. People have safe housing. People have decent education. Kids can go to school and not worry about being shot. Um, Kids can go to school and not worry about being secluded and restrained. Many autistic kids are, have extreme punitive um, measures put on them when they're misbehaving. So I think that like improving schools, that's social justice, basic health care, that's social justice, parents who are not, um, I'll speak in the positive, parents who are doing all right can raise healthy kids. Yeah. Mm. So when I see, when I see social justice movements today, disrespecting parents, um, wanting to come between p- child and parent, thinking they know better than parents. No, that's not social justice. Fair enough. And given that yeah. your focus is neurodiversity parenting, and I love the sound of that, neurodiversity <laughs> parenting for raising sensitive children and empowering parents to educate their spirited children. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a lot to offer families that are navigating the current upheaval. So as a parent yourself, like you mentioned your daughter, what experience do you have with homeschooling? 
We have homeschooled since day one. Um, homeschool was always our plan A because I am someone who is very aware of the climate of public schools in my area. And I'm not even talking about gender and race. I'm just talking about the the structure of schools and how kids they're asked to sit for six hours a day and they're asked to be obedient little robots i'm not into it um and i didn't want my daughter to have to participate in that so we have homeschooled since day one and when i say homeschool we don't really do school at home we're involved in many different activities in the community that are drop-off activities so it allows myself and my daughter's father to work um, and she is just getting the most beautiful education. I'm talking like at the beach, in the mountains, um, at art museums, at the library. So I like to think of it more as out of classroom learning. That sounds so fantastic. She, it's amazing. Yeah. So she she's learning with her peers out of a classroom. And it's amazing. So what's the difference between homeschooling and unschooling? So unschooling is a type of homeschooling. Unschooling comes under the umbrella of homeschooling. And it's more of, um, it's not traditional in the sense that you're not necessarily sitting down with your child with curriculum and like a daily lesson plan of this is what we're doing. You're not doing school at home. You're not trying to mimic the school environment at your dining table. Unschooling is a colloquial term for um, self-directed education or self-directed learning. And it essentially means that the adults set up an interesting environment and the children are drawn to learn because the environment is so enriched and um and they the, the children have a lot of autonomy a lot of freedom and within that autonomy and freedom there are containers that the adults have set of boundaries that kids are not running the show but because of all that autonomy and freedom the kids actually develop to be much more responsible have a ton of agency they believe in themselves and it helps them. It helps to raise kids that are not fragile. Actually, it helps to raise kids that are um, like not coddled. They're strong because they've been able to interact with the real world and they've been able to learn responsibility. It's amazing. Right. They're yeah. resilient. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if a public school teacher is listening to this. Yes. what they might be thinking. Um, maybe they're thinking, well, I, I can do that or I do that or like all, look at all the strategies I'm Im implementing to yeah. engage spirited children, one might mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. what, what would you have to say to a, a public school teacher who's probably facing some challenges but also feeling hopeful that they can overcome those challenges and meet the needs of the kids that might be coming to you? Yeah. I talk to a lot of teachers and I also present for teachers about autism. What I say to teachers is that I understand that, that their hands are often tied. I've worked on school campuses and I have compassion for teachers. I have compassion for how much they're being asked to do 
I think that teachers have way too much on their shoulders for way too little. They are being asked to get kids ready for college, solve the national race problem, uh, teach, uh, be uh, miniature gender counselors, be miniature or, you know, unofficial mental health providers and raise other people's kids all while trying to teach kids to read and do math and, and, and stay present for the lesson. I think that teachers are, are just have way too much on their shoulders and it makes sense why so many of them are leaving the profession. I don't blame them. So when I speak about homeschool and unschool and raising spirited kids, I try to make it clear that I'm not blaming teachers and that I understand that it's really leadership and the structure of the school environment that ties their hands for, for all that they can do. I mean, they have all these standards they have to meet and they have all these regulations that are out of their control. Even the teachers who want to talk to families about the child's desire to use a different pronoun, their hands are often tied. They can lose their jobs. So I just want to say that I feel for teachers. I don't have a magic wand. Um, I teach teachers how to make the classroom more comfortable for autistic and ADHD kids. I give strategies for that. But many of them, they're kind of like, yeah, it sounds good. It looks great on paper. But realistically, within the system that I work, that is not possible. So I want to say to teachers that I feel for them and I know and and I know that that the the issues are not their fault. Yeah, I think it's a good approach to take to address the system rather than the people. Yeah. And even so, like there are there are in education and in other fields there are people that are seem very fond of the system or at least more fond of the system than the idea of changing it or leaving it. Yeah. So if, if anyone is listening and is perhaps like someone who really likes public, the public school system, likes being a part of it, or as a parent that's happy with it, what yeah. might you say to them? Oh, I say count your blessings. I say, if you love your child's school right on, like seriously count your blessings because many people don't. So if you have a good situation, I think if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's what I think. I don't ever tell families that they should do anything about leaving school, staying at school. That's not my role. If they decide they want to leave school, then I am here to help them understand more about the logistics of homeschool and unschool and how that might positively impact their child's mental health and well-being, particularly neurodivergent kids. But it's out of my scope to say you should leave your school. That's an, an individual choice for parents. I love that. Yeah. 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 It all comes back to the individual's choice and yeah. desires and needs. And um, I think that's why mostly like I tend to align with like it, the, the belief systems around individual liberties, you know, because yeah. I just think that that works in so many cases um, just to really like regard each person 
as an individual, as unique. And I think that brings out the yeah. best in each person, whether they're an adult or a child. Yeah. Um, and I'm I curious, think... like, oh, sorry. I'm just like, sorry. I have so many questions. Like, I'm just curious um, over the past year or so, have you noticed a huge uptick in parents interested in homeschooling? Yes, yes. And I don't, um, I think that my view is uh, skewed because I have like a self-selected sample, you know, I post about homeschool and unschool and then they reach out to me. So it's kind of like they self-select, but um, there's an article that was published recently on Substack on free black thought. It's a publication. And apparently black families are like, have this mass exodus out of the schools, public and private. Like they, I think the numbers are the fastest growing and the largest. So that was interesting. But yes, I have tons of families reaching out to me saying, I want to talk about homeschool. I want to talk about um, unschool as working parents. Cause that tends to be the, the logistical uh, issue that can hold people back. Cause they're like, I work. And even if I don't work, I don't want to be home all day with my child doing school. And I'm like, I don't either. And we don't do that. So here are some other ways. So I have a, a program coming out about that. And um, so, yeah, I have a lot of parents reaching out to me. It's mostly because the school is not a good fit for their spirited child. Maybe their child's autistic, ADHD. The structure of the school is not a good fit for their child's temperament. And I, I get parents who are interested in learning about homeschool because they're upset with some of the gender ideology stuff. Um, but mostly it's autistic and ADHD parents. Hmm. And, yeah. and what makes their children especially spirited? Like what are some of the qualities of a spirited child that's bringing you hope? That brings me hope. Yeah. That, okay. Um, I love spirited kids. I just, they keep us on our toes. They have so much energy. That's what makes school hard is because they are movers and shakers. They are not sitting at a desk being okay with being trained to be obedient members of society. They are the change makers. They are the rebels. They're the free spirits. They're the ones who will speak up when injustice is happening and not be able to be quiet about it. And oftentimes these traits aren't the best match for public school and that's okay. Um, so what do I love about them? I mean, they can be really silly, honest, have like a subversive sense of humor, so creative, innovators. These kids are innovators. And many public school programs are teaching kids to be followers. They're teaching kids to be compliant. You get the right answer. You don't take a lot of risks because risk taking means you might get the wrong answer. And in order to be creative and innovative, you have to be comfortable getting the wrong answer. You should not be punished. It needs to be welcome to get the wrong answer because that's how we create things is you fail first. You fail a whole bunch of times. And traditional schooling doesn't allow for that. And these are not my original concepts. Um, 
what's his name? Sir, I want to say Sir Robert something. He's he's deceased now. He's from the UK. He was he used to speak about this a lot about just like starting over with the schools, modernizing them. Yeah. And how schools kill creativity in children. Is he the one that speaks to the the good enough parent? No, the good enough parent was Donald Winnicott. He was a psychoanalyst and I believe a, a British pediatrician as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you also asserted that parents don't owe their children to any movement and within the context of the good enough parent um what do you think is a good enough parent as compared to a perfect parent okay first I'll speak to parents not owing their children to any movement many parents particularly again I'm going to go back to many white parents because of people like D'Angelo have been taught that they need to raise social justice warriors. They need to start dismantling systems of oppression starting in kindergarten. And we see examples of this in Portland kindergartens that the kids are being taught to be activists. They're being taught queer theory. And what I say to parents is no, you do not owe your child to any political movement. It's okay to reject the the modern activist parenting ideas. You you can still be a good parent and not do any of that stuff. Um, And so what does it mean to be a good enough parent in the context of, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. In in the context of of not, not giving in to the current climate but also not shielding your child completely. Okay. So I think that the good enough parent is entitled to raise their child aligned with their own values, even if those values are disliked by popular culture, popular progressive culture. I think that the good enough parent... um, selects the educational materials that their child's going to be exposed to if they have that option. Parents who are homeschooling, they have that option of of having more of an eye on what their child is consuming for education. The good enough parent whose child is going to the public school, they might um, teach their child at home about their own values and their own beliefs, like you would a, a, a faith or science, and then let your child know that in school they might be exposed to some other ideas that that they that that our family doesn't really agree with. Kind of like if you're teaching your child um, about other religious beliefs. You can be respectful of those religious beliefs and still let your child know that that's not our religion. So I think that the good enough parent is not, the good enough parent is aware of what is happening in society and not becoming too obsessed with it if they can, if they can avoid that. 
Because to become too obsessed with it, trying to be perfect, what that does to a parent is it creates anxiety and you start to parent from a place of like neuroticism, trying to make sure your child like isn't exposed to anything. You could drive yourself crazy because the reality is unless you're, you're keeping your child isolated in the bubble of your home which is not healthy, your child's going to be exposed to people out in the world who identify as non-binary and, you know, different parts of the gender ideologies. So I think that the good enough parent, maybe they prepare their child for things that they're going to be exposed to, and they teach their child the values of their family. I wonder if one way of explaining some of this to a child is to say like rather than point fingers and say like even like oh that poor person or like they're just mistaken or um maybe you could just say something inside that person is hurting Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I wrote about this recently explaining explaining a person who has transitioned to a child when you don't subscribe to the ideologies. And I framed it in that way that I believe gender transition is usually uh, an intervention that's trying to relieve something that's hurting inside. And so that is how I would probably explain it to a child is that first of all, we're assuming the child can tell that this person living as a man is a female. So I think that if the child can tell, I don't think that it should be pushed under the rug. I think that that's gaslighting kids. I think that we should name that this person lives as a man because it makes them feel better inside. They had, they were hurting they were hurting in their heart or or they were hurting in their brain. Whatever the developmental stage of the child is, you would adjust the language. But like one time I had to explain like schizophrenia to my child because of how a homeless, mentally ill person was behaving in front of Barnes and Noble. So I didn't have a choice. I had to explain that this person has a a brain that's different and, and that is why they are behaving in this way. And so I would probably explain um, gender transition as this person was maybe sort of suffering in their brain or in their heart. And it feels better to them to, to live and to look like a man if they're female. It's very confusing. (laughs) Yeah. It's new territory for parents. Yeah. Yeah. You, you posted a related quote that motivated me to challenge core beliefs of mine, or uh-huh. maybe not the core belief, but more so like applying it, you know, just beliefs and understandings around respect and tolerance. Like you were just describing, like respectfully saying, you know, this is what this person believes and this is what we believe. Yeah. And, um, and tolerating it to an extent while also maintaining a clear boundary. Yeah. And also beliefs just around being kind and polite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
the the post quoted the social worker Norbert Rapp, who said, you cannot help children and denigrate their parents. Mm -hmm. What does it look like to be good enough if you're a parent who questions or opposes gender identity theory? Or if you're a parent who aligns with this theory and celebrates mutilation of young people before their brains are fully matured? And how can people who haven't fallen into the delusion of gender identity theory help young people who have been programmed without denigrating their parents? Or is that even possible in some cases? Okay. Um, I might need to, to, you to repeat certain aspects of the question because my brain won't hold on to the, all of them at once. Um, how to be a good enough parent when you don't subscribe to gender ideology and your own child is, has been taught gender ideology? Sorry. Yeah, actually, I'll break it down. Sorry. This okay, was, thank you. This is the thing that I emailed you that's been like going, you know. Yeah, just, totally. Like, it's my neurodivergent yeah. brain myself. I just yeah, it Yeah, it's like, chunks. okay. So first, um, okay, so the quote was, you cannot help children and denigrate their parents. Yes. What does it look like to be a good enough parent if you are someone who questions or opposes gender identity theory, I feel like you answered that already. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the the real like hard question that's been challenging me and some of my core beliefs around respect, tolerance, and kindness is what does it look like to be a good enough parent if you're a parent who aligns with this theory? and celebrates mutilation of young people before their brains are fully matured? I think that parents who align with the theories, the gender theories, I don't think that, first of all, I don't think that they really have a, a strong understanding of the theories. I think that they are being good enough because many of them are following the clinical recommendations of licensed healthcare providers. They are following the, the suggestions that doctors and therapists are telling them. In most of society, a parent who follows doctor's orders, let's take our brains back to when most people trusted the medical field, right? I know we're kind of in a different era right now, but let's go back to when most people trusted the medical field and trusted doctors as experts and therapists as experts. A parent who, who followed doctor's orders or who followed the therapist's treatment plan was considered a good parent. Imagine the doctor saying, you need to start trying to get your child to sleep at 8 p.m. and, you know, turn the tablet off at 5. And the parent ignored the doctor and the child's sleep problems continued and worsened. The medical professionals would start to look at that parent as not a very good parent if they're not willing to implement those guidelines and, and have those limits. So... I think what makes many of these parents good enough is they're they're doing what they think is best for their child and they're trusting the licensed clinicians. 
to become a licensed clinician in any field, we have to go through so much education and so much clinical supervision and a gigantic exam that it makes sense that the parents would trust those providers. Now, more and more people are coming out and not trusting providers. It's a cultural shift. But the majority of parents are not doctors. They're not therapists. They don't have time to do the deep dive medical school, you know, research. And they trust their providers. And so I think that a good enough parent um, does what they believe to be best for their child. And I don't like the idea of demonizing um, parents who transition their children, even, even though it can be so hard to understand. And I'm speaking generally right now. Of course, there are some parents who, who might do this for reasons that are not healthy and, and, and not a, a, not um, wholesome, if you will. I know that there's a lot of theories about parents trying to get attention and social justice points and, st and stuff. I'm not speaking to that. I'm speaking to the average parent who has been told by providers that if they don't transition their child, their child's going to kill themselves. Those parents who transition their children, the last thing they need is, is more attacks and more disrespect um, they are so stressed and major medical institutions are telling them to do what they're doing. And many of them, I think they might know in the back of their minds, they might question, how can this be right? And yet at the same time, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the, uh, you know, American Psychological Associ Association, the school districts, all these major trusted institutions, the ACLU, it's really hard to be a renegade parent. It's easy for us because we have that temperament. Temperamentally, I think you and I are more, we're more free thinkers. We think for ourselves, we're more rebels, we're renegades, um, maybe innovators, but the majority of people are kind of like, they go along. They go along with, with what they're told. And so I think when, this goes back to the schools where we're trained to do that in school. So what I'm hearing is that the, the idea of being a good enough parent is of course subjective because being good enough as an individual depends on who you are and how mm -hmm. self-aware you are. And so if the best you can do is listen to these organizations and be true to yourself as someone who's trusting of authority mm -hmm. then I guess that's good enough um yeah. and there, there's certainly um a place for expressing empathy and and concern in those situations or maybe yeah. just taking a step back what what I'm also thinking of is um like the theory you mentioned of parents trying to get attention or social justice points mm -hmm. because I I've also experienced a parent publicly asserting that if if someone in the family or in our network of friends posts stories of detransitioning, then you are responsible for my child's pain and possible suicide. 
I see that as a parent who um, is deeply misled. Yeah. I see them as a parent who thinks that they're doing the right thing. It makes my eyes water because I know that this is common. And um, uh, I see that as a parent who has, who is in a lot of pain and who is maybe trying to offset some of their pain, project, project, project some of that pain onto others. It's like a defense mechanism of their own fragile ego, their own fragile psyche. It could be a, a, a defense mechanism of the fact that they, they truly are questioning whether or not this transition is right. And that's too painful. So it becomes protective of the psyche and the ego to take this very firm stance of this is right. And anyone who questions, you know, they're evil. So I see it as a parent who is hurting. I see it as a family who is hurting, who's in probably deep distress with a child who is transitioning or questioning transition. Um, and I see it as a family that needs a lot of support and I, I also think that the person, the person who is told, if you post detransitioner stories, you're responsible for my child's suicide. I think that that person is in every right to take boundaries, to take space from the person who's saying that. If they need to protect their own psyche, you know, it's not right to accuse people of murder and suicide when they're just talking about facts facts and genuine concern and genuine concern yeah. yeah yeah there was a really great podcast episode that I listened to with um Karina Cohn do you know her no who is she um she was on Benjamin Boyce's podcast I don't even know that she's using the pronouns of she anymore um but Karina Cohn is a male who transitioned and now is detransitioning 10 plus years later. And um, Karina talks about how some of these parents, it's like they're going through the stages of grief. The parents who are transitioning their kids they're going through the the anger and the shock and the the denial and many of them are kind of living in that denial space that makes sense and it also makes sense to set boundaries um mm-hmm. because there and i am thinking of a specific family <laughs> and if they're mm-hmm. listening they know who they are um as I understand, their ideals or their standards for respect include me lying to their daughter. Mm-hmm. And of course, to them, it's not considered lying. But to me and my conscience, even if I'm the one who's completely deluded and it turns out men can be women, maybe I'm wrong. Uh-huh. But how dare you 
coerce me into going against my conscience. Yeah. Is really what it comes down to. And I don't want to coerce anyone to go against their conscience either. Yeah. And now here we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that in my in my mind, I think that one of the most respectful ways we can approach this is if we if we do think of it as like religious pluralism. Here in the US, we have a pretty long precedence of being able to tolerate people with different beliefs. Obviously, it's gone wrong sometimes, but we have laws and we have like social norms. So I think that if we thought of it as this is a religion over here and I don't subscribe to that religion, but we can still be family and we can still be tolerant and even kind and friendly. I think that that could be a helpful lens. I live in Southern California, born and raised. I was raised with people of so many different religions, so many different races and belief systems. My best friend was of a very different religion and a strong believer, different culture, different race, even different class. And we managed to be best friends for all of our childhood and we're still very close. So how did we do that? We gave each other space. We, we, we connected on our mutual fondness for each other and, and set aside where we disagree. Now, if you're being asked, if, if someone is trying to compel your speech to say something that you believe not to be true, that's a different, I mean, that feels like an infringement on your intellectual autonomy and that's disrespectful. Yes. I, it's like I, asking you to say a prayer to a religion you don't belong. Yes. It's, I think it might be exactly like that. Yeah. I can really appreciate this lens and you're, you're really actually helping me. And I hope some others too, because I was raised in an interfaith intercultural environment and I've, I've formed friendships and bonds with people from a, different races, different religions, different lifestyles, different classes. And I think what, I mean, you, you said it, like the difference here with the gender stuff mm -hmm. um, is, is the, the compelling one speech or even yeah. trying to infiltrate one's mind. It's like they're, yeah. they insist on, not only do you have to say this, you also have to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Thank you. I feel like there was a breakthrough <laughs> there. There was <laughs> um, No, I'm with yeah. you and that's what I get so fired up about it because I'm like, sorry thought police. You're not you're not welcome here. I love you. If this is a family member, you know, I love you and no thought police here. Mutual respect gives each other intellectual autonomy. Well said. 
Another theme that I've been picking up on in your work and at large, to put it simply, is daughters. Mm -hmm. Girls. Yeah. Do you think it's especially important to teach young daughters how to stick up for themselves? Or is that skill just as important among young boys? I think it's important among girls and boys, daughters and sons. I sometimes amplify the cause of daughters and girls because I think that girls more than boys are socialized to be nice. I think that we might even have some innate differences between the sexes of being more agreeable. I think that there's some research around that. And so take the innate differences of more agreeableness combined with the socializing of be nice. And we have girls who are losing their voice, who are not being um, rewarded for being assertive in a way that traditionally many little boys have been encouraged and rewarded to be assertive. Things are changing now because we have this new idea of toxic masculinity and that's coming into the the boy world. I know that boys and men are really suffering right now. I'm I'm aware of some of that research and um I don't want to ignore that problem. It's just that I choose to sometimes amplify the role of little girls and daughters because I have one and because I know of the risks of us being told to be nice. As a woman myself, I, I've experienced tons of um, people wanting me to dim my light, to turn down my voice, to not be so strong in my message. And I don't know, I don't know if men experience that as much. I don't know. I know that they have other concerns and, and struggles that women have less of. But just from my own experience as a woman, I know that people often want me to sit down and shut up, essentially. And I want to make sure our little girls know that they don't have to sit down and shut up. Yeah, in the current climate, boys and men are experiencing that as well. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the tips that you posted, like to teach daughters and perhaps really anyone who's just learning to stick up for themselves mm -hmm. is to say, I'm not okay with you controlling how I speak. Uh huh. And that's why this came to mind after we were just talking about compelled speech, because yeah. I love that line. And I hope I get to use it. I hope I'm brave enough and <laughs> on the ball enough to use it in the moment one day. Yeah. Just say, I'm not okay with you controlling how I speak. I don't know how, I don't even know how someone might respond because for me, that's such an obvious, like, that's, I feel like that's just such an obvious boundary. Like how yeah. on earth would you respond to that but I, I suppose like some of the common responses in in the realm of gender identity theory would be something along the lines of well if you don't say this I'm going to be really I mean I, I'm just paraphrasing but if you don't say this I'm going to be really depressed I'm going to be really anxious don't you care about my mental health yeah yeah and that's um, a theme that's coming up a lot today in families 
Um, and also more broadly in some of our inst institutions like schools and, and universities, it's a tricky legal line. It's, it can be considered discrimination. Um, you know, there are cases that are reaching the courts about this. So it's just a really kind of new frontier. I'm, I'm not okay with my speech being compelled. I'm also not going to be a jerk. Um, and I'm not going to intentionally hurt anyone's feelings and I'm going to be aware of the laws. Um, but I'm also not okay with my speech being compelled. So I think that there are some ways to be respectful if you don't want to say the prayer that you don't believe in. And professors and parents are finding those ways, but there's still, I mean, there's court cases about it. I don't know if you're familiar with one of the university professors. I can't think of his name right now, but he um, said that calling a male who looked male by a female pronoun was against his religion because he doesn't believe that men can be women. And so to be respectful, once he learned that, that the male did not want to go by a male pronoun, um, to be respectful, he agreed to call the student by their last name, which was, you know, non-gendered. Oh, I like that. And it ended up in court. The professor was disciplined. The student filed a complaint and, and he, they had this major lawsuit. And the professor won on the grounds of religious freedom and also free speech, or intellectual, you know, intellectual freedom, academic freedom. But it's like most people don't want to end up in court. Most therapists are conflict averse. Really? Um, that surprises me because some therapists specialize in things like couples counseling. Yes. So I would think that they would be good at navigating and facilitating conflict. I would think so too. And I'm sure some are. But I think that the majority of therapists, we are nice people and we want to be viewed as kind and compassionate. And that's why we so easily, I think, fall into some of these like emotional blackmail traps of social justice movements. I think, I think it makes us especially prone. That, that makes sense. Um, and psychotherapists are allowed to disagree with the medicalization of children. For every single diagnosis in the DSM, except gender dysphoria, why do you think that is? Like, they, they raise a few eyebrows, like you said, I'm actually reading a quote from you, like, they may raise a few eyebrows for being against medicating ADHD, but never in a million years would they be labeled anti-ADHD kids. Right. So why, why do you think there's such a stark difference in your field on the topic of gender? I think that, um, and I know, I know some, uh, many others are writing about this, um, but 
when we make a, a clinical diagnosis and identity, and then we take that identity and we say that they are the most marginalized in all of society, they are the most at risk, they must be protected, revered, and not, and, 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 criticism sort of like avoided they become this identity becomes the sacred cow i view that as dehumanizing but many others don't and so when we take this identity and we give it special treatment then when we critique the medical interventions that we've been told are beneficial to this identity group, then we become bigoted. Even though the medical inter interventions are not based in evidence, they're not based in strong evidence, which is why so many countries are abandoning the approach. So I think that a lot of people have made ADHD an identity as well. But ADHD kids have not been uh, made sacred, like trans kids have been made sacred. I think that that's part of it. And this tendency to put trans identified kids and adults up on a pedestal, is that an early sign of narcissistic abuse? the people who are putting them on the pedestal are doing the narcissistic abuse? Yeah. Um, I can't really say that because I, that would, that would make it. So I ha I would have to label everybody doing that narcissistic and I can't really do that, but I would say it's, I think it's bigotry. I think that when we make someone a superhuman, we are dehumanizing them. And to dehumanize someone based on an identity group is bigoted. It puts a lot of pressure on that individual. Yeah, it puts a lot of pressure on that individual. It's almost like spiritual. It's almost like they're making trans people like a deity. Which ties right back into this whole religious theme. Yeah, and... I mean, one one might even argue that the mental effects of even just socially transitioning mm -hmm. could do permanent damage. I, I'm not sure, but like, what, I'll say what gets me is like the mental and maybe what could be perceived as like spiritual damage that's happening. Uh -huh. The physical damage is is connected, but it's kind of another topic. Yeah. Um, because like, emotional abuse can can leave scars that last perhaps longer yeah than physical so what comes up for you like around the emotional damage that's happening and like what concerns you most have um around the effects of gender affirming care or what's called gender affirming care what is my biggest concern about what we call gender the gender affirmative care model I'll speak about children because that is my field. That's my area of focus. I'll speak about children first. 
Um, we don't have research. We don't have long-term studies to say that this is appropriate. The studies that we do have that have come out of independent nonpartisan reviews in Sweden, Finland, the UK, and most recently uh, Florida's public health is that the, the risks of the model outweigh the benefits for kids on a, on a broad, broadly speaking. I can't comment on what an individual child needs. It's just like in my ethics, I, I only comment on that for a client, right? But broadly speaking, we don't have the evidence to support such an extreme model. It's extreme. The medical burden on the body is tremendous. The psychological impact of being referred to as the opposite sex by all of your family and social community is profound. Many kids, okay, there's a theory that many kids, once they have um, been affirmed in that, in living as the opposite sex, even if they want to desist, they might struggle with that because it's like admitting that you were wrong. That's hard for a lot of people, including children, especially autistic and ADHD children who tend to be more black and white, more rigid in their thinking. So imagine, let's, let's, let's take the adult developed brain for a minute. An adult has been living married for 10 years and then they're separated and then they're divorced. That is a big identity shift on the brain and all of your different social networks that you were once married and now you're not. Now think of the child's brain and let's say that they were socially transitioned and they lived as the opposite sex for five, 10 years. And now they're having doubts and they want to go back to living as their natal sex. But socially, they've been treated in this other way for so long. Imagine how hard that is for the brain to reconcile a child's underdeveloped brain. And a family that has been celebrating you and having the confetti and the balloons and the flags and the t-shirts and the protests affirming this other identity. And now the child is saying, uh, I don't know if this is really for me, but my family has put all this on for me. Imagine. So other concerns I have for children are um, the medical, the physical medical burden. We know that there are compromises to bone health. Um, there's a higher risk of cancer when you take cross-sex hormones, infertility, sterility, uh, making irreversible medical changes to the body. I went like this because I was cutting off my chest, but you know, that's a big deal. We can't just chop up bodies and, and think it's not a big deal. Um, I have concerns about the future intimate health of these kids. I think that we are deluding ourselves if we pretend that their future, future sexual function doesn't matter. I think that that's cruel and unusual to rob a child of that while they're still a child, that should be an adult choice, in my opinion. 
So those are my main, those are my main concerns is the lack of evidence, the medical burden, and that it's like, uh, it's like a sledgehammer on, on what's that expression? I sometimes get the expressions wrong, but you know what I mean? It's an overkill of what can be explored psychologically and socially in a much more gentle way. Sorry. Just give me one minute. Sure. Okay, thank you, editors. I know. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Um, Okay. This brings us back to informed consent and when it can happen in this context. As I understand, the human brain isn't fully developed until at least age 25. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's the understanding we have now, yeah. So if that's true, or if that's the understanding that we're working with, what would be an appropriate standard for how we navigate people's journeys with gender dysphoria? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of the more exploratory, traditional depth psychotherapy approach um, that looks at psychological and behavioral challenges from a lens, a holistic lens that accounts for biology, psychology, social, uh, social factors, spiritual factors, developmental stage. So I think that careful attention to all the different factors that may be contributing to the person's gender dysphoria should be accounted for and explored in psychotherapy. Um, As far as informed consent and when someone should be able to consent for medical gender transition, that's a tricky one. Um, Kids cannot give informed consent, period. Uh, So their parents are the ones consenting. And I think that informed consent should be truly informed. People should have a real good grasp of what that means, what it means to put that medical burden on the body. I am a fan of individual liberty, and I don't like the idea of the government uh, coming in heavy handed and controlling what doctors can do with adult patients. I think that there's um, room to improve gender medical transition in a way that doesn't make the, that doesn't empower the state more. I don't like to see the state empowered more. I'd like to see doctors making choices because they have good ethics and they're looking at the the medical research as opposed to a heavy-handed overreaching state coming in. I, I just don't like that. Um, so I, I can't really make the call on when that would be appropriate, like what age, but I just think that it's, it, it's an adult decision and it should be done after a lot of psychological treatment and, and exploration and after a ton of informed consent on what this really means 
for the body. And I think that uh, I think that there should be a long uh, window of time where the doctor could be liable for medical malpractice if the if the client um, says that this wasn't right for me and I wasn't informed on what it really meant for my body. And what's another way that you have in mind for you know an effective way of encouraging caution? that would not empower the state with children or adults with we'll start with children. And then if you have thoughts about adults, feel yeah. Free. Um, I think that with children, I think with children, it's easier to see some, some regulation come in. I think that what we can do is when our governing bodies, when our medical and psychological governing a governing is not the right word, our professional organizations, if they were to shift their public stance on gender care for children as being one that broadly discourages medicalization, doctors would be motivated to listen more to those professional organizations and doctors don't want to be sued. So I think that there's the the cultural influence of our professional communities if they were to take a, a, a more evidence-based stance. And then I think that there's the threat of malpractice that can keep doctors in place. And on the third note, if we can explain to parents, if we can stop lying to parents that they only have one choice or suicide. That is so unethical. And so we can empower parents to make better choices for their kids because it's the parents consenting. And if we can give parents uh, more tools to support their gender dysphoric or gender questioning child. So I think that those would be ways to, to not empower the state and to see some positive changes in pediatrics. With adults... That's a, it's a different beast because I like the idea of doctors having freedom to practice. And I like the idea of adults having freedom to make choices about their bodies. Like if a woman wanted to get, like I said earlier, a breast lift, um, a nose job, whatever, even if we don't agree with it, I still think that as as free people in a free society, if we want to change our body in some way, I think that we should generally be permitted to do that. But I think that doctors, I just want to see a higher standard of care where they're giving the clients better informed consent. I think that that could be a, a positive force. And then of course, the threat of malpractice, people don't want to be sued. Yeah, fair enough. That was a really good summary of the, oh, op yeah. <laughs> of the options on the table. Thank you for that. Of course. Um, and re reflecting on perhaps your, even your own mental health and, and those therapists who are speaking out and anyone else who's sharing their story of detransitioning um, or just anybody, you know, who's exploring a really dark topic such mm -hmm. as pediatric gender. Um, what advice might you offer, like from your own perspective, like, how are you balancing the work that you do 
to bring a sense to just to bring sense to this space, common sense to this mm-hmm. space while also making space for light in your life. Mm. That's a big one right now that I'm, I'm still learning. I have some tips I can offer, but I'm definitely still learning because I was really thrust into this gender world. I didn't really want to be here. Um, but as I've said in writings, it's like, once you see it, it's really, you can't unsee it. And if you're someone who has any moral compass, um, and any courage, it's kind of like it, it, and you work for yourself. Um, I feel that our voices are needed and I feel I have an obligation to do this work for parents and kids, but it's so important to take space. And that's what I'm learning. I'm learning to take space. Um, so like I've taken the whole month off of Instagram and that feels really good. Um, and I've, I've implemented stronger boundaries on my Instagram. So just the general public, general randoms, people can't reach me on Instagram, only the people I follow, um, you know, and I, I tinker with those boundaries, those settings, but I'm pretty closed. I'm pretty untouchable (laughs) No, but I've made it to where I can't really be reached. If someone has something to say, they can email me. Um, so I think having those boundaries, having some distance, taking space. And I was saying, I was talking to my mom about this the other, the other day that like the work, it never ends. And understanding that the work doesn't end, it brings, makes my eyes water. Cause it's like, it's so heavy. So understanding that the work does not have an end allows you to move away from it a bit and know that it will be there after you've cared for yourself and and your family. And so that's helping me put a little bit more of a lid because if I try to work until it's done, I will work forever. So that's kind of my framework right now is just taking space for rest and renewal and making myself less available to the general public. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And and exploring the pediatric gender topic, among others, it causes one to extend outward and maybe experience excessive outward focus and also mm-hmm. reflect inward. I think naturally the topic of gender um, is very introspective because we're mm-hmm. thinking about um, how it relates to a variety of topics like race yeah. and then more specifically gender roles what is a woman I mean existential <laughs> crisis yeah right <laughs> um, and and I've read that inward focus is associated with depression right mm. excessive inward focus excessive yeah. inward focus yeah hyper yeah. inward focus Some inward focus is necessary to be well and to be self-aware, but we know that people who are healthiest, they are serving others. That's one of the main tenets of positive psychology, which is research based on what makes people happy, not just happy, well, what makes people live a, a joyful, contented life 
And it's service is one of the main pillars. It's not inward focus. It's outward focus, helping others. It brings us meaning and purpose. It aligns with a lot of people's spirituality as well. And um, I think that that's part of the, I think it's part of the reason so many youth are unwell today, which is another topic. Maybe I'll come back on and we can talk about it. But these youth, they're hyper-focused inward. And they're also hyper-focused on, on what the outward thinks of them, which some of that is normative, but I think that it's, I think it's excessive right now because of social media. And I think we could all do by, do well by stepping away a bit. Absolutely. I'd love to have you on again, by the way. Thank you. I didn't mean to just invite myself, but I like chatting with you. <laughs> I, already, I already invited you before we even started talking. I invited Yay. you again. Yeah. I would love to have you on again to talk more about your homeschooling map that you're working on for the new year. Thank would you, you like to share a little bit about the homeschooling map? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I um, am I'm, I'm making a homeschool offering for parents who have made the decision to leave traditional schooling, whether it's public or private, again, I can't make that decision for anyone, but so this is for parents who are questioning or have made the decision and they want to know, how do we do this when we are modern moms, we're modern working moms, and also, you know, even if a career isn't part of our life, we don't want to be home with our kids all day because it's not good for us or them. And so... I have a, a map of how to like problem solve these various issues and give our kids an awesome, rich, exciting, stimulating education that does not involve sitting at their dining room table for six hours a day. The kids are out in the world and they are um, learning to be anti-fragile and courageous kids. And it's very community involved. It's the 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 offering is going to help parents find their local offerings for dropping off the kids in these educational um, opportunities. And yeah, so that's that's the gist of it. It's going to be like a workshop where I'm teaching and also provide resources. Um, and I'm excited about it. I can't wait. This is that my is, passion. Yeah. This is my happy place. So unschool and homeschool is like my happy public voice. And then the gender, the gender is the, is the darker hard place, but it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all connected. I can tell you lit up as you were talking about it. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to have you on again next year to talk about homeschooling more. And Thank you, Sienna. Sure. Yeah. And mental health and anything else that might come up for you in the new year. Thank you. I'd be happy to come back. And this is so lovely to talk. This was lovely. Thank you, Tava. Thank you. <laughs> Would you like to share real quick where people can find you? Yeah. So people can find me on um, Instagram at neurocurious therapist. They can find me on my website, tavajohnstone.com. And they can find me on Substack at tava.substack.com. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your afternoon with me. Thank you. Thank you, Sienna. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Take care, Tava. Take care. <laughs>